Oh, what's up, Harlan? How we doing? I want to know who's got $1,000 in their pocket that could give that to Michelle right now, because I don't know if that was too steep, bro. We could raise that in a couple minutes. I don't know. Uh, wow, that's, that's awesome. Hey, everybody watching online, how are you doing too? I hope uh, you guys are doing well. Can we welcome into the room all the people who are tuning in with us, our church family. Some of you are at your home, you can't get out. Some of you, uh, you're sick right now. We wanted to, you know, like on behalf of our churches, your pastors, we just love you and so much and we're so glad that we can come be a part of your day today and help you see God in your life as well. Isn't that awesome that like God just has provided this technology for us to expand what we're doing? I just think that's a good thing and I feel like we should applaud one more time because that would feel like a good thing to do. Uh, we are in week two of a series on, called Monumental. Uh, we're talking about building God-sized dreams. And last week, uh, we, we, look, we said that God-sized dreams are these dreams that like the only God can do this thing in my life type things. Like the like, God-sized dream is like an only God can do this thing. We know that these things must change in this world, in our lives, in our families, in, our, in, in our, our, ourselves, but only God can put this back together. Only God can move the mountain. Only God can change the heart. And so we do... What the man Nehemiah did when we see an only God can do thing is we pray that God would do what only God can do. That was uh, last week. If you missed it, I'd love to invite you to check us out on the app and be able to follow along with that. But today we resume the story to discover what happens after prayer. Have you ever wondered what happens after prayer? Uh, Nehemiah prays and then he waits before anything happens. Uh, in, in this world, we have a phrase, um, especially in our society, it's called timing is everything. Timing is everything. Have you heard that phrase before? Timing is everything. Comedians, uh, they actually spend decades of their lives perfecting their timing. My, my dad is not a comedian. Um, I was raised in a Norwegian family. My dad has one joke. He, this is my dad's joke. You ready for my dad's joke? One joke, one dad joke. He goes, why can't Norwegians tell jokes timing? my dad's joke. It's the only joke he's got. It's the worst joke in the world. Uh, business leaders spend hours reading the markets, trying to time the markets so that you can position your company in the right way. Musicians spend lots of time trying to figure out the right notes to play at the right moment because the right, mo right note at the wrong moment is the wrong note. Timing is everything. I was listening to a podcast a couple months ago uh, from former President Barack Obama. He was sitting down with this guy named Reed Hoffman. And, and Obama was reminiscing about how it was that he became the president in the first place. And for him, this was a story that he, he told kind of over a long extended moment. But he said it was just a series of moments, one after the other, that just things, the timing just seemed to be right, where if this didn't happen or that didn't happen, it wouldn't have worked. Just the time was Right, and then in the podcast, true to podcast interview form, the podcaster kind of broke the wall to me and said over, over the microphone, he said, I believe that the moment almost always chooses you. But to seize that moment, you have to move fast. The, the idea today with Nehemiah, you can open your Bibles in Nehemiah chapter two, that's where I'll be all day, uh, Nehemiah chapter two. The idea is this, is that, that there are moments in life that are moments connected to your God-sized dream. And here, here's, here's the thing, don't miss your moment. Don't miss your moment. Some of us have, have dreamed dreams for God, but we've waited and we've waited and we haven't really discerned the moment that God has given to us to be able to step in. And, and here's just what I want to help us as a church and you as a, as a follower of Jesus today, just to help, help us get a sense of how do we know when the moment is right for God that God is leading us. Nehemiah had a dream. He had a God-sized dream that God's people would be, would be returned safe to God's city so that they could worship God. 
God said he was going to do it. And Nehemiah prayed, God, would you do the thing that you said you would do so the people could do the thing that you asked them to do in the place that you said they could do it. God, this is a you thing. This is all about you, God. So would you, I'm asking you to do the thing only you can do. And he prays and he ends this prayer recognizing, God, I've got a part to play. Give me favor in the presence of this man. And then the end of chapter one ends this way. I didn't give this to you, but I want to give it to you now because it tells us everything we need to know about Nehemiah's position. He says at the end of Nehemiah chapter one, now I was cupbearer to the king, cupbearer to the king. Uh, some of you uh, at your uh, evening soirees, you have a glass of wine and you wish you had a cupbearer because that makes it a little bit more elegant. Uh, Persian kings back in this time had a cupbearer, not because of the elegance factor or the servants factor, but because they didn't trust no one. Persian kings were suspicious of everybody. They ruled with an iron fist. They knew that they were kind of like a heavy-handed overlord and they assumed that everyone was out to get them. And so to help them be protected, they would establish all of the security measures, one of which was having a cupbearer. A cupbearer would actually taste the food and the drink to make sure it wasn't poisoned. Sort of a sacrificial person, so to speak. How many people want to volunteer to be a cupbearer? Great wine. Might be laced. Yeah, not many people would actually take us up. But as a cupbearer, <clears throat> Nehemiah had incredible significance and importance in the palace because he became like a number two to the king. He had access to the king. Um, maybe, maybe I could say it this way. He, Nehemiah was Charlie to President Bartlett. All right, some of you are older, you got that reference. I'll say it this way. He was Nathan to Coach Lasso. All right, we're getting closer. He wasn't an official number two, but he was significant. In fact, if anyone in the nation of Israel had the power to change things for the Israelites, it was Nehemiah. He was uniquely positioned by God to seek the welfare of his city. So we might imagine Nehemiah catches word from his brother that the city is torn down, that its gates have been burned, that it's, that it's just the walls are in rubble. And he might, as the cupbearer to the king, the next thing he might do is walk into the king's palace and demand a hearing with the king. But actually what chapter 2 verse 1 says is something very different. Here, here's what it says. It says, in the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes. Now that doesn't mean anything to us because we don't measure our months the same way that the Jewish calendar did. But first month in chapter one was Kislev and the second month in chapter two was Nisan and that's kind of like November to March. Four, four months have passed since Nehemiah has prayed. Four months have gone by where he's had this dream, he's had this burden, he's had these tears. He's asking God, God, you've given me a position of influence and power here in this palace. Would you allow me, God, to somehow have favor in this sight of this man today? Even, God, would you help me? Would you help me move? Four months goes by and ostensibly nothing happens. And isn't that kind of why we don't pray? I mean, in four, four months is a long time. I was doing the math just the other day, and four months ago, I was listing my house to sell in Valparaiso, Indiana. Four months. It feels like I've been here for 10 years. Four months. A lot can happen in four months. And for nothing to happen in four months feels like a long time. But how many people know that God is way more patient than us? <laughs> Here's what I mean. We are panicked beings, you and me, for whom timing in this world is everything. 
We, we try to look out over the landscape of our lives and catch the wave at the right moment to kind of propel us to where we think it ought to go. But God doesn't need to catch waves or catch times. He makes his own waves and he controls all of time. We, we look around at the dreams that we're dreaming, the things that are in our heart, and we ask God for this. And, and I wonder this, what's the dream in your life that you dreamed for a long time that God hasn't brought to fruition yet? Maybe it's taken a little longer than you thought it should for things to pan out. I've had a few sets of friends recently who um, have tried to get pregnant, and recently they've adopted children. It was an agonizing process of waiting for tests and waiting month after month and waiting for conclusive results, then waiting for home studies and waiting for the match to hit. Meanwhile, it seemed like the life of everyone else around them was going by at high speed. And one couple in particular, I remember talking to them not too long ago, and they told me this. They said, it felt like God forgot about us while he was blessing everybody else. Have you ever felt like that, that God has forgotten about you while it seems like everyone else around you is getting something from God? I wonder if that's what Nehemiah was feeling. You know, we're not good at waiting. Did you know that? Even if I ask you the question, what are you waiting for? It comes out with an air of like, you should get moving, right? What are you waiting for? But I really, I really do wonder, what is it in your life that you are waiting on God for? For some people, it's a promotion. For some people, it's a relationship. Maybe it's a reunion or an improvement or even healing physically. What do you do? when you wait on God. Nehemiah waited and prayed and prayed and waited, but what happens next shows us that waiting on God is never wasted. If I had one thing for us to learn today, for one thing for us to take hold of in our hearts today, it's just simply that phrase, waiting on God is never wasted. Waiting on God is never wasted. And here, here's, here's what I just want to read it to you. It's, it's uh, right here in Nehemiah chapter 2, verse 1. It says, In the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was brought for him, I took the wine and gave it to the king. Now, I had not been sad in his presence before. So the king asked me, why does your face look so sad while you're not ill? This can only be sadness of the heart. Now, I was very much afraid. He was very much afraid because um, Persian kings being suspicious of everybody thought that there were plots afoot to take them down. And so they required everyone in their presence to put on a smile. They, they had to be cheerful in the king's presence. Otherwise, they were uh, liable to be killed. Nehemiah has one of those days where he can't mask his feelings, and so he steps into his job. He brings wine to the king, and yet he can't hide what's been going on, the anguish in his heart. And the king looks at him and says, what's going on with you? It doesn't seem like you're sick. Is something going on? And Nehemiah, that's why he says, I was very much afraid, because his job and maybe even his life were on the line. So to, to squelch this, he says, well, um, may the king live forever. Why should my face not look sad when the city where my ancestors are buried lies in ruins? Its gates have been destroyed by fire. And then the king said to me, what is it that you want? What an incredible thing. And look at what he says. Then I prayed to the God of heaven and I said to myself, I'm not throwing away my shot. I'm not throwing away my shot. You know, I'm just like my country. I'm young, strappy, and hungry. I'm not throwing away my Everyone said it together? Shot. Shot. You didn't know that was in the Bible, did you? I just was making sure you're paying attention. Sometimes I'm saying things that I feel like are really connecting with your life, and you're like, I don't get that one, Pastor. Uh, no. This, this we have to recognize is a moment. The king looks at Nehemiah. The king, who has complete control over the entire empire, complete control over the known world to him. 
looks at Nehemiah and says, well, what do you want me to do for you? <laughs> Look at what Nehemiah actually says. This shows us what he's been doing while he's been waiting. Nehemiah says this. This is actually verse 5. He says, if it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in his sight, let him send me to the city in Judah where my ancestors are buried so that I can rebuild it. This is uh, Nehemiah's shot. It's a moon shot, so to speak. He, he was making a plan for the past four months. You see, when we think on waiting on God, we who see time as money think about waiting as a waste. But waiting on God is never a waste because it's actually an investment in our lives where we get to practice our faith. This is what Nehemiah shows us is that while we're waiting in the in-between of the burden and the promise, there's always this period of waiting and planning so that God might open the door and we'd be ready to pounce. Nehemiah had been doing what all good leaders do. He prayed and then he planned so that he wouldn't miss his shot. I, I, um, I was thinking about moments in my life where I prayed really hard but I didn't plan and how that went for me. I actually got a bunch of these stories that I, I'm a little embarrassed by. The one that I'll share with you today is um, I was just a couple years out of college and I've been praying that God would use me in a way that like I could reach people that would know Jesus and that Jesus would be turning people's hearts around. And um, a pastor in the area who I'd worked with before came to me and said, Dan, we want you to start a church down in this one part of Chicago. And I thought, this is incredible. Like, wow, maybe God, this is what something I prayed for. Maybe, maybe this would be a, a thing that we could do. And we sat down, the pastor and a couple of the people that were going to go start this thing. And I remember being so young, so unsure of what I was even doing. And um, they looked at me and they said, now, now Dan, um, we just want to know, like, what are your plans? It sounds like you've been praying for God to use you. What are your plans? How do you see us as a church really helping people find Jesus, people who don't know Jesus to find them, people who know Jesus to be grown up? Like, how do you see this going? And I just remember being, you know, in my early, mid-20s and having a lot of plans for what I wouldn't do. You know, things that I had seen that in my maybe youthful arrogance thought, like, I'm just never going to do that. But how many people know that anti-vision is not vision? A lot of us know what we're against. It's a different thing to know what you're for. Nehemiah in this moment shows us it's not just enough to be against someone. Nehemiah could have easily said, well, I'll tell you what I want you to do, king. I want you to let my people go. I, I, what you've been doing is wrong and it's not right. And we're going we're gonna to figure this out, all right? You're going to let me go. We're going to go back. God said it. So we're just fine. Let's do it. But notice that Nehemiah takes a more positive approach to the king. He, he says, may the king live forever if it would please you. My ancestor's city is in ruins. He appeals to the king's inner dignity. He says, the city of Judah, which is a really slick political move because he doesn't say Jerusalem. But that's what he means. The, the, the city where his ancestors are buried, which is Jerusalem. Can I go back? Would you let me go back and rebuild it? Nehemiah actually appeals not to the political side of this king, but to the personal heart of this king. And I wonder about you, your dreams and, and your goals. Are, are they ambitious? And are you someone who is praying through them and planning your next steps with God? Or are you just kind of like me in the mid-20s, just trying to figure out what I'm doing and praying but not planning and not taking steps? And here's what I did after that conversation, which obviously didn't go well and I didn't start a church, thank God. I um, decided to bloom where I was planted. 
decided to dig in and to take that time while I was learning what it was to be a servant of Jesus, to take those steps and to plan, how God would you call me to do this? When the moment was right, how would this go? And now, a decade later, I'm grateful for the planning. And I wonder, are, are you waiting? And are you planning? Waiting without planning is like asking God for the benefits without actually, or, 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 or the benefits of the destination without actually getting the benefits of the transformation. Here, here's what I mean by that. Part of the dream is that God would change not just our circumstances around us, but that God would be changing us ourselves. And as we plan, as we get practical in our lives, as we, as we put before God just the things that we hope that he would do through us, the vision that he's given to us, not the anti-vision of what we're against, but the vision of what we're for, we would say to him, God, it would be incredible if, if you would just open this door, this conversation, this thing for me to be able to walk through those together. As we get practical in our lives and as we actually, actually sit down and look at where God's positioned us and what the resources are, God actually gives us finger holds of faith for us to be able to scale the mountain as he leads us one step at a time. And I wonder, if, if you were to talk to God and God was to say, you know, I'm, I'm God, the king of the universe, king almighty, and I'm curious, what would you like me to do for you? What would you say? There are moments in the New Testament where this is the question that Jesus asked some of the people that he encounters. People who need healing, people who are sick, people who have been outcast, people who have been looked down upon and they know exactly the dream they have in their life is a dream of wholeness and healing. That would be a life-changing, life-altering dream if God would do that in their life. And Jesus looks at them and says, what would you like me to do for you? And they say, would you heal my son? Would you bring my child back? Would you give me my sight? Would you help me see? What is it that if God was asking you, what do you want me to do? that you would want him to do. Something that only God can do. See, that might be the, the nugget of a dream that God has put inside of you already. You could, like Nehemiah, say, God, uh, King, I want you to let me go. Rebuild the walls. Now, um, <clears throat> let me just help you see this. This is an incredibly foolish dream. It's actually insane. And the reason I say that is because if you look at the book of the Bible, Ezra, which is right before Nehemiah, Ezra is another guy who led people back to uh, Jerusalem. Ezra chapter 4 records 13 years before Nehemiah is in Artaxerxes' palace. 13 years before, they send a letter, a delegation writes a letter back to King Artaxerxes saying this. This is kind of a summary of the letter in uh, Ezra chapter 4. King, you shouldn't have anything to do with Jerusalem. They're enemies of the king. They're actually really bad people. And if you let them get their city rebuilt, they will stop paying their tribute to you and it's gonna be economically disadvantageous to you to rebuild Jerusalem. So we as your loyal subjects feel it's our duty to let you know you should never have anything to do with Jerusalem ever again. And King Artaxerxes 13 years prior actually stamped that letter as public policy. So Nehemiah, in asking the king to let him go back and rebuild his city is actually taking a step towards insanity. Here's Nehemiah's plan. I just want to put it up here so you can see it. Here's, here's Nehemiah's six-point plan. Just, I tried to get seven, but there wasn't seven points in the text. So there's only six. Uh, here's what it says. Ask the king. Ask the king to reverse his own historic policy regarding Jerusalem. Convince the king to release me from his service so I can manage a construction project over in Los Angeles. That's about 1,500 miles away from here. Convince the king to write me letters of safe passage. Secure funding. Let the king pay for all this, including lumber from the national forest for the gates and for personal home for me to use. And how many people know that if you're getting lumber from a king, your house is going to be really big, right? 
So you're not going small, like give me a huge house. And then um, number five, enlist the help of those who are in Jerusalem who've tried this before, right? For a hundred years, the people of Jerusalem have been trying to put the gates back together, trying to put the walls back together. And he's going to have to go in there and ask, hey, let's do this again. And they're going to say to him, we've tried that before. Number six, start building. What I love about this plan is it's so specific that, that Nehemiah, when the king asks him, what would you want me to do for you? When he says all of these things, he's met his moment with a plan. He did it in a way where the king was honored by it. He was not underhanded. He was just simply appealing to God and the king. And verse 8 tells us this, and because the gracious hand of my God was on me, the king granted my request. And not only did the king grant his request, he far out excelled them. Because Nehemiah took off with a whole entire squadron of guards and officers who provided him safe passage all the way to Jerusalem. I read this article this week um, about Matt Damon, since we're talking about him. And uh, it was about Matt Damon's happiest day of his life. Matt Damon and his best friend, Ben Affleck, uh, were young, uh, you know, just 20 and 22 years old, trying to cut their way into acting, and um, nobody was giving them parts. All the best parts were going to this one actor, and it was really frustrating them. And so they came up with this plan. They said, you know what we're going to do? We're going to take a year off of auditioning. We're going to write our own script, and it's going to be just for us. Like, we're going to write this, and we're going to be the ones who star in this movie. And the studios loved the script, but they didn't really know if they loved these two guys. And so offer after offer kept hitting the table, like, hey, we want to pay you a lot of money for what you wrote, but we really don't think you're the right people for the, for the movie. And these two guys said to themselves, we didn't come this far to just give up now, so no. And finally, one studio took a risk. One studio actually gave them the money and Matt Damon later said, the, the happiest day of my life wasn't the day that that movie won Oscars and awards after award after award. And he goes, no, the happiest day of my life was the day that we first started shooting. He goes, the, the first day when, when we sat down on set and I looked through a camera hole and I saw in the display Robin Williams trying to find his mark. He goes, a tear fell down my eye. He goes, because we had tried and planned and we had finally persevered. Now, it's one thing to be persistent. It's another to be persistent in prayer and diligent in planning. And the gracious hand of God was upon Nehemiah step after step after step. Now, I think actually Nehemiah had a Matt Damon type moment. The moment that he saw the broken down gates of Jerusalem, he saw sort of the embers of the city, he saw the promise that God had made for him. And I wonder if as Nehemiah stepped foot back into a city that he had never been to, a city that was the city of his ancestors, a city that held the promises of his own God, the city that God told him he would go back to one day. I wonder if Nehemiah shed a tear for the faithfulness of God. I wonder if he sang that song, all my life you have been faithful. All my life you have been so, so good. I wonder if Nehemiah looked around and looked up and, and, and realized the faithfulness of his God as he thought about his plan. And this is kind of where the scoreboard landed as he walked into Jerusalem and seeing just the, the, the obstacle after obstacle after obstacle, God had changed the heart of the king and here he was leading him in. God had been faithful. The dream was unfolding. He was back in the home that he always wanted, experiencing the blessing that God had always promised. You know, some of the most difficult things on that list were accomplished, but I think the heavy lifting was still ahead of him. 
And so with day, within days of arriving, Nehemiah set off with just a few people in the middle of the night. He didn't tell anybody why he was there. He didn't explain to them who he was. Imagine that, just this guy came from the king's palace with a couple of guards and didn't say anything for why he was there. And then he gets, he disappears in the middle of the night. Nehemiah said he went to go get a lay of the land to look around, to scope things out. And he had yet to speak to anyone what he was doing. In fact, look at verses 12 and 16. This is what Nehemiah writes. He said, I had not told anyone what my God had put in my heart to do for Jerusalem. And I had said nothing to those who would be doing the work. I find in my own heart, this is like the hardest part of having a dream for God. When, when God does something in my heart that sparks excitement, I'm the type of person that's like, hey, let's all go for this. I just thought about this two seconds ago. Wouldn't this be amazing if? And yet Nehemiah teaches us in the waiting for God, sometimes there's a waiting to share. I don't know what you've been holding on to that you feel God has burdened you for, but Nehemiah shows us that timing is everything. And he takes a moment as a leader does to get the survey of the land, to kind of look at what he sees. He sneaks out of the middle of the night. And what did, what did Nehemiah see? Nehemiah saw problems. He saw a gaping hole in the wall. How many people know it's, it's easy to spot problems in new places? How many of you ever bought a house? And like you uh, walk through it in like the, the open house and it looked beautiful. And like you only realize that like the area rug was put that particular way for a reason until like once you moved in and the area rug wasn't there anymore and you realize like, oh, there's a hole in the floor. And you looked at your spouse and you're like, why did we buy this dump, right? This is no reflection of the house I just bought. I had to apologize to my realtor who was here the first service. Like we love our house, but like you've been there, right? You bought a house and you had buyer's remorse. It's easy. The reason that happens is not because you actually bought something that was, you know, undervalued or overvalued. The reason is because it's easy to spot problems in new places. Anyone can be a critic. The difference between a leader and a critic is there where a critic only sees problems, a leader can see possibilities. Nehemiah was going out trying to look at all the problems that had faced Jerusalem, all the problems that faced his society, all the problems that plagued his people. And as he looked around and some parts of the wall were even impassable to him, he saw not just problems that stood in the way of the, this, this, this graveyard becoming a garden again or these ruins becoming glorious again. He saw possibilities for what it could be if only God would use him. And isn't this true of your life too? Isn't this what God did for you? God looked upon you and he didn't see someone who had it all together with a bright shining city and saw like all oh, the perfect side of you. No, God looked at you and what did he see? He saw, he saw problems. God looked at me and he saw issues. But what did God look past to see into the future for me? God saw potential. And isn't this true of you too? We might be tempted to look at what limits God we realize that what God sees in us is not just the flaws, but God sees the future. Nehemiah looks around at the walls and he sees, yeah, there's gaping holes and there's, there's scorches everywhere, but, but this is gonna work, he says. So Nehemiah rallied the whole entire city together. And finally the moment came for him to share why he was there in the first place. Look at what he does. He says this. He says, then I said to them, and notice how he kind of puts himself with them. He says, you see the trouble we are in. We, you've been here for four days. Jerusalem lies in ruins. Its gates have been burned with fire. Come, let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem. And we will no longer be in disgrace. 
Now, I also told them about the gracious hand of my God on me and what the king had said to me. See, Nehemiah had made his moment their moment. He says, we all see the same thing. We all are in trouble. Let's rebuild. Let us no longer be a disgrace. And if, if this was a church that was feeling stuck, Nehemiah might expect the people to say, Nehemiah, for the past 100 years, we've tried that. We've done that. We tried that before. It took too long. It didn't work. It cost too much. People didn't like it. I'm sorry, am I talking to too many religious people today? How many people know when you go to a church, sometimes it can be like, yeah, that ain't going to work, pastor. Nehemiah had a hard task in front of him to turn people's hearts towards the project. If this was a business, maybe this is how the conversation would have gone. I don't know about that. We're not positioned in the market that way. The investment is too fast, too quick for where we are. Maybe if this was a family, someone in the family might say, well, we already have jobs to do and the calendar is already full and this is a huge inconvenience to our life and I don't want to live in a construction site. Amen? Amen. But God had brought Nehemiah this far. God could be trusted to take Nehemiah the next step. And just like God moved in the king's heart, God moved in the hearts of the people that Nehemiah came to lead. And look at what he said, verse 18. They replied, let's get to work. So they began the good work. Listen, this is, this is where the rubber meets the road for us today. I think this is what happens when hearts are changed towards God. This is what happens when our hearts break for the things that break God's heart. And when we believe that while we can't do the thing that needs to be done to bring about the healing or the restoration or the next step in our plan, we believe that God can. And so we pray. We don't believe that we can change people's hearts. We believe that only God can change people's hearts. He's the only God. He's the only one who can. But at the same time, Nehemiah teaches us that we don't wait for all the clear, for the all clear from God to start planning and preparing, we're going to pray like mad. We're going to keep our eyes open. We're going to wait on God, knowing that he's the one that turns the world in his timing. And he's the one that turns hearts in his hands. And so we pray and we plan so that when the moment comes, we can step forward and not miss our shot. I don't know what it is for you this week, but I got to just wonder, is there a moment for you this week where you keep praying that prayer that you've stayed with for so many years maybe, but for something new this week, you sit down with God and you say, God, show me the next step and tell me when to take it. And if I know that you're with me, I'll take my shot. God, this is our prayer. God, we are nothing without you. We know that. And God, our heart's desire is that there would be more of you in our lives and less of us. So God, I just ask. I ask in this moment right here, right now. I ask in the presence of this church, God, would you continue as we pray this audacious prayer, God, would you use our church, Heartland, to change hearts? God, we... we We've got hands that are open, hearts that are ready. God, we want to be a people that don't just see problems, but we see potential because you're a God that doesn't just see problems. God, you see potential in everyone. 
And so God, teach us as we're being patient and learning to wait, God, teach us how to follow you in the plan that you're unfolding. Just step after step, finger holds of faith up the mountain, knowing God that it's never a waste to wait on you. Father, all this we ask in your name. Amen.